The Energy Gang is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is proud to offer its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. Learn more about Fusion Solar PV at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is a bonus edition of The Energy Gang. Welcome. We talk a lot on this podcast, and we're taking the Thanksgiving holiday to rest our vocal cords, but we'll be back with the normal Energy Gang schedule next week. We also talk a lot on our new podcast, The Interchange. We played a few episodes for you a while back. Those are for subscribers to GTM Squared, but we're going to occasionally give you a taste of what we're discussing. For those who haven't subscribed to GTM Squared yet, you've missed a ton of good conversations between me, my co-host Shail Khan, and our guests. And this week, I'm going to play some snippets from a couple recent shows we recorded. The first one you'll hear is about the economics of residential storage. We talked with our senior storage analyst, Ravi Mangani, about where batteries could work for homeowners. And a bit of a spoiler here, it doesn't yet make sense in most places, but we'll try to help you understand where it will. Uh, In our second snippet, you'll hear us talk about the economics of solar after the investment tax credit. Everyone wants to know what will happen to the U.S. solar industry if the tax credit doesn't get extended. We'll try to answer that question for you. These are just a few pieces of the very detailed discussions we had on both subjects. You can listen to The Interchange every week at GTM Squared. For only $1.99 a year, you'll get fact-driven conversations that will help you understand what's happening across the clean tech sector. And the podcast is just one thing we offer among many. There's a ton of other analysis, plus free streaming of all our conferences and early bird discounts for those events that never expire. If that sounds appealing, go to your browser on your computer or your mobile phone now and click greentechmedia.com squared. It's in your show notes there if you're on your mobile phone. And you can find out more information or sign up today. Now enjoy the discussion. Here's my co-host, Shail Khan, setting up our show on storage with Ravi Mangani. We specifically decided to do the first podcast that we're doing here on energy storage on the residential sector, which is an interesting decision for us to make because, you know, the energy storage market as it exists today in the U.S. is primarily in front of the meter, meaning big utility scale stuff. And then second to that is commercial and industrial behind the meter. And residential is is a tiny share. It's something like 1% of all installations by capacity that have gone in in the U.S. So residential energy storage in terms of market size is really nascent. Um, on the other hand, if you look at sort of media coverage of it, if you look at you know Tesla's announcement about the power wall and a bunch of other things, residential energy storage gets a lot of attention. And so we sort of want to spend some time today talking about how those things match up with each other. Uh, is the market really growing? What is driving that? What are the economics uh, that are either a factor or not a factor in the growth we're seeing today in residential energy storage? Um, and what are the value streams that that home energy storage can provide today and potentially in the future? And then, you know, who's out there doing it? What are the companies that are doing, making, you know, real activity in residential energy storage now, whether or not paired with other things like solar or load control or other ancillary services? And uh, how are their business models shaping it up? 
And then another thing that we haven't talked about a lot on this podcast that I think this is a good opportunity to talk about is markets outside of the U.S. Because, you know, though residential energy storage is very nascent in the U.S., it's actually a little bit more mature in some other countries like Australia and Germany. So let's talk a little bit about how it's shaping up in those countries and why they're a little further ahead of the curve. Uh, So there's a lot to cover there. But Ravi, let's get started with sort of the basics, um, which is the economics of residential energy storage in the U.S. today. Um, what are they and, you know, do they look attractive to any customers today? Great question. And, and, uh, my answer to the question would in fact, uh, would put an end to this conversation, hopefully or not. But, uh, what we're seeing today is the economics, you know, broadly speaking, do not work out. Uh, there are a couple of factors, uh, that, that result in the economics being sort of, uh, at this point, non-existent. Uh, so you have to first think about, you know, what are the key uh, f- drivers or preconditions for uh, for residential storage to pick up or to even exist for that matter in, in, in any sort of significant way. So we have to think about, you know, what are the opportunities that do exist? You're talking about arbitrage opportunities, uh, which would exist if there were uh, time of use tariffs, which were, uh, you know, far apart enough in, in terms of the low versus high range that would that would make you know energy storage investments uh, attractive or you would so, need to have sorry go ahead no so i just want to make sure that we're we're sort of starting from basics here so to yeah. further describe what you're talking about there one opportunity would be if there are time of use rates then a customer could charge the battery at a time when electricity is cheap and discharge the battery at a time when it's expensive instead of using grid power, right? And the big, the, what determines the economics there is not necessarily either of those numbers individually, the cost off-peak and the cost on-peak, but the difference between the two. That's the arbitrage opportunity. Precisely. And, and if you take into account uh, the, the upfront capital investment as well as the ongoing O&M, as well as uh, replacements through, uh, for the battery packs, as well as the inverter through the, through the you know, 20 or 30 year life cycle, you are looking at uh, a levelized uh, sort of uh, cost of, of, of carrying out this arbitrage, which could range between 15 to 25 cents, depending on which technology you're using. And, and uh, uh, how long the, the system's going to last, right? So I don't think there are that many markets today where the delta between the peak and off-peak uh, prices uh, are sufficiently high to to make that economics work out at that 15 cents mark or so. So what about for resiliency, for backup power? That's what Tesla appears to be targeting first in the U.S. market. Um, many believe that this is the first mover market uh, are are people really willing to pay a premium for being battery battery backup? So l- l- that's an interesting question, right? And in fact, let's take a step back and and think about the backup market. The backup market has been the biggest market uh, historically speaking, uh, but it's it's relied on uh, your you know traditional lead acid batteries, uh, which are even at today's prices are about a third or fifth of what uh, Tesla can offer. Right. So those traditional batteries will not necessarily be capable of, you know, ha- having uh, daily discharge uh, capabilities or, or, or even hold sufficient amount of energy to provide uh, you uh, with uh, peak shaving opportunities on a daily basis and so on and so forth. Right. So it's, it's pure backup. Right. You're only going to use it when the grid's off. So 
in, in those scenarios, your capital investment cannot necessarily be high. You, you are only going to be using those systems for you know, maybe one or twice a year or maybe in five times a year. So lead acid batteries, which cost anywhere between, you know, $80, $90 per kilowatt hour to about $200 per kilowatt hour, depending on, again, which brand you go with. And compare that to Tesla's uh, power, power wall, which is, I think, priced at about uh, $350 per kilowatt hour. So although arguably it, it will last longer and it, and it has better characteristics in terms of uh, the, the amount of energy it can hold and the energy it can effectively provide because uh, lead acid batteries typically can only be used for very shallow cycling. So all those factors taken into account, yes, the, the the backup market has always existed, but that is not necessarily the interesting market. It would always continue to be on the fringes of 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 uh, the the growth in the energy storage industry that we expect uh, is is uh, is going to come. Now, just to play devil's advocate on that, um, I, you know, I think you're right. There's always been a, a relatively small backup market for residential. This is, I mean, true for commercial as well, but. Uh, I think the bet that Tesla is placing, at least right now, is that they can make the power wall sexy enough that it makes these backup power applications, even in the absence of great project economics for the customer, worth it for people who can afford it. And so, you know, in the same way that, that the Tesla car is not for every driver, it's for drivers who want something luxury and, and cool, maybe the power wall is for homeowners who have a little bit of money to spend who want a cool backup power application. And, you know, maybe there's a real sized market for that, that they're creating basically out of marketing, in the, you know, in the mold of Apple getting you to spend a lot of money for, for an iPod years ago. I mean, do you lend no credence to the idea that backup power could actually be a big market if only people thought it was cool? Uh, I, I think the backup is a, a sufficiently big market, but not at the price point that Tesla can offer. And, and you're right, you, you would still end up having some uh, end customers who who have that kind of discretionary, you know, uh, spending that that power that that can that can you know uh, that they can buy a ten thousand uh, dollars system. But again, you have to think about you know uh, end of the day, you still have to think about economics and the economics for even a natural gas backup or or a, or a diesel gen, gen set backup is is so much lower than uh, or rather the economics so much better because the costs are so much lower than compared to a battery backup and and uh, so the, the the difference is 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 high that is so high that you would you would see some some offtake you would see some adoption but again i i think it, it's it's going to be on the fringes unless we start to think about what are some of the uh, grid interactive benefits that that uh, storage can provide and, and and i think that's that's where uh, most of the action uh, we expect uh, is, is going to lie right so you that's a good segue because so far we've only talked about one of the potential value streams which is the arbitrage on time of use rates let's talk about some of the other ones that exist today at least in limited capacity and then let's talk about some of the ones that don't really exist right now but could pop up so uh next how about another one that that sort of exists today more on the commercial side than residential but a couple places on the residential side which is demand charge management to what extent is that a driver today for residential storage right so uh demand charge management is essentially uh, you know any 
any CNI customer or a majority of the CNI customers have uh, two components of their electricity bill uh, in addition to the fixed charges that that exist for pretty much every uh, end customer. So the two uh, components are the energy component and the the demand component. The energy component basically charges the end customer based on the number of kilowatt hours he or she consumes, whereas the demand component is charging for the the peak power used by the end customer during a billing cycle and those typically are are calculated uh, based on a 15 or a 30 minute cycle so if if in a if in a billing period, period which typically is, is a month there was a 15 minute window in in that entire month where the peak demand was let's say 100 kilowatts whereas the rest of the the rest of the uh, end customer profile was averaging at about 3 or 4 kilowatts so there would be a charge that would be based upon that 10 kilowatt number rather than the average or the or the lower lower part of a lower you know component of the of the peak demand so that the peak the demand charge that exists can be uh, shaved by using storage for instance uh, or load control and, and we can talk about you know the, the, the pros and cons of each uh, so the, the peak demand that that can be shaved by storage uh, essentially provides uh, you know savings to the end customer and and again so, so far as as uh, Shaley mentioned it exists for a majority of, of CNI customers but uh, we are starting to see some utility uh, jurisdictions where uh, end customer residential end customers can either voluntarily or or can are, are forced to participate in, in a rate tariff that includes demand charges C- correct me if I'm wrong but the salt river project is the only utility that has a demand charge for solar customers Right. So Salt River Project is a utility where there is a demand charge for solar customers. And I, I, I think there are some other uh, tinier markets where uh, there are voluntary programs where end customers could either participate in, in demand charge uh, kind of uh, rate, rate tariff structures or even time of use rate tariff structures uh, that, that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I think SRP might be the only mandatory demand charge for residential customers, uh, residential solar customers. They're not the only one that that has it. I mean, I think uh, personally that ten years from now, five years from now, I don't know, sometime in the future, residential demand charges are going to be a lot more prevalent than they are today because you're going through all these places where you know there's uh, net energy metering battles going on and rate structure battles that surround solar. And demand charges, first of all, they exist at the commercial level. They're, you know, pretty effective on the commercial side of things. They are more cost-based. You know, the customer's costs to the grid are reflected better in a demand charge, a peak demand charge, than in a pure volumetric rate. So it it has some sort of inherent economic sense to it. Um, And it's not, you know, completely against what solar advocates, I mean, they don't like it because solar can't guarantee reduction of demand charges, but it's better than a fixed charge for a solar customer because they potentially can reduce it a little and then you can add storage. So to me, it seems like, I don't know, it's hard for me to imagine residential demand charges don't get a lot more prevalent pretty soon. You see two types of reactions within the solar industry. One is uh, from task primarily that calls residential demand charges a, a tax on solar, which they pretty much call anything that disrupts the current net metering regime. And then you have a lot of people who are very cautiously optimistic who say, well, you know, this could absolutely encourage people to install battery storage and load controllers and smart appliances. And 
if you structure it in the right way, so it's not too onerous, then you potentially push innovation in the right direction. Do we actually see the demand charges having that influence yet? Or is it still theoretical? So like we said, right, there's only one utility SRP that has a mandatory demand charge for solar customers. It's it's still early in the day. uh, And and even that was uh, established earlier this year. So we're still early in the game in terms of seeing the actual impact of demand charges on residential customers. Uh, especially since the the costs uh, up until a few you know months back have been significantly you know sort of uh, beyond reach for an average uh, residential customer. Uh, but but one thing I do want to bring up is we started off this conversation uh, talking about demand charges and then we uh, moved a transition into talking about net energy metering. So in in my opinion, th- those two are, are different discussions, although one is leading to the other, because uh, you can have rate tariff uh, discussions and rate designs in the absence of net energy metering or or post net energy metering uh, frameworks. So I, I think. Yes, there are you know tariff re- reforms that are a result of uh, growing solar penetration, but but they are not going to be necessarily uh, applicable only to solar customers. So that that discussion needs to happen in in sort of in in absence of what it means uh, to uh, discontinue net energy metering or move away from a net energy metering uh, regime. Well, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think that there's too much focus on sort of fixing or changing net energy metering and not enough holistic focus on rates in general and how to redesign rates better to fit the sort of distributed energy future. There's some places where this is happening, you know, New York and California are probably the classic examples of that. But on the other hand, if I'm, if I'm looking at the future of residential energy storage, um, it, it does still feel to me like the bulk of the economic residential energy storage that gets installed in the next five or 10 years is going to be tied to solar. It's going to be there because of the net energy metering rules or there to self-consume solar. I guess if I'm putting you on the spot, Ravi, you know, five years from now, what portion of residential energy storage installed in the U.S. will be attached to a solar project? Uh, So five years from now, I believe about 60 to 70 percent of uh, residential storage that gets deployed will be deployed with solar. And 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 you're right, Shale. Uh, today, I think a majority of uh, residential storage is being deployed with solar. Uh, that number is probably as high as 90 to 95 percent, uh, especially if you start to look at some of the uh, data that uh, we, we collect from uh, different uh, utilities in, in California as well as Hawaii. Uh, definitely, uh, so residential storage is, is strictly limited to existing or new solar customers but uh as as you know we're talking about a five-year future i i think there are there are going to be opportunities beyond uh just uh self-consumption or or uh or solar plus storage uh opportunities that that will result from some of the the changes in rate tariffs that we talked about and then there's this whole discussion around uh, uh what benefits can storage and other behind the meter assets provide for uh, for you know broader grid services network services or even for participation in wholesale markets all right let's take a quick break here between segments to talk about our sponsor Huawei technologies Huawei is a leading global information and communications technology provider operating in 170 countries 
Huawei's new product, Fusion Solar PV, combines cutting-edge IT technologies and power electronics for digitizing solar power plants. The Fusion Solar PV solution is designed to optimize capital investment, reduce maintenance costs, increase power generation, and boost the rate of return. Learn more about Huawei's Fusion Solar PV solution at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. Huawei, building a connected world of endless possibilities. Next up is a piece of our discussion about the investment tax credit that we recorded uh, about two weeks ago. We tried to work our way through a few different scenarios of what would happen, ranging from full phase-out to a uh, full extension for about five years. Here's Shale setting things up once again. We're talking about the solar investment tax credit, and I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast knows all about it. But just a quick recap. The ITC is a 30% federal tax credit for all solar installations in the U.S. And it basically has been the single biggest driver of the solar boom that we've seen over the last decade. It was passed in an eight-year extension in 2008. Uh, So we've had eight years of pretty stable policy from the federal perspective for solar in the U.S., which has been a, a huge part of why solar has grown as much as it has. But we're looking right now at a looming potential expiration. If nothing changes, the ITC will drop from 30% to 10% for all commercial systems, all utility-scale systems, and all third-party-owned residential systems at the end of 2016. And it'll drop to zero at that same time for host-owned residential systems. So we have this cliff that we're heading toward, and it's, you know, 13 and a half months away right now. And... There's, you know, basically, I think the reality is that nobody, us included, actually knows what will happen if that expiration takes place. And we have a good sense of it. We spend a lot of time modeling it out and talking to players in the market. And, you know, everybody has some idea. We really don't know, in part just because it's so unprecedented in the history of this market. Yeah, well, let's be clear. We we don't know exactly what the numbers are, but I think we can all safely say that that the growth is going to reverse dramatically. Well, um, it depends on what you mean by reverse dramatically. I mean, I think that's something we should be talking about here. It clearly will have a significant negative impact on the market. There's no question about that. So if, you, if you're comparing you know, an ex- a full extension scenario to an expiration scenario, there's a drastic difference. But there's a lot of debate within the solar industry of exactly how big the impact will be from 2016 to 2017, how fast the market re- will recover thereafter if it does. Um, and what various extensions might mean. So the point of this podcast is sort of talk through some of the issues about what will happen if it does expire as currently scheduled and then also what would happen under some scenarios where it gets extended in various forms. But before we do that, I do want to acknowledge that you know we'll be spending a lot of time talking about what happens in the expiration scenario that is sort of current business as usual. But there's a lot of effort being done by SIA, the trade association, many other solar advocates to get an extension of one kind or another. And we had an interesting interview with Ron Resch, who's the CEO of SIA at a conference that we held last week. And he was pretty bullish on prospects for extension. In particular, he said um, that he thinks that the odds of getting at least a commence construction rule included, which we'll talk about what that means, are over 50%. And in addition to that, he thinks there's a few bills that the ITC extension as a full extension could get tacked onto. So yeah, I was surprised at the number of vehicles that Roan outlined during your interview with him. Of course, it's his job to be optimistic and to paint an optimistic picture for the solar industry. But I've been talking to a few people here in DC, and also talking to Catherine Hamilton, who's a co-host of the Energy Gang, who works on this issue day in and day out. And she seems pretty optimistic, too. There are at least 
three or four legislative vehicles that we could attach the ITC to within the next year. So there's there could be movement on this front. And a lot of people have been upset at our assumption that the ITC is going to step down or expire. And I remember Lynn Jurich at our SMI conference saying, hey, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But we think that it's important to model what will happen if the ITC does expire. And so that's what we're going to focus on most. Yeah. I mean, again, it can be extended and we should talk about that. But if you're a solar company right now, you know, you have to be planning for what happens if it does expire. It's just prudent business planning. So you got to be thinking about that while you are simultaneously pushing for an extension. So MJ, I'm going to kick this over to you. Um, Can you broadly outline the sort of bull case for what happens to the market, meaning the, the case that says ITC expires and the, and the market is just fine, and then the bear case that says the exact opposite? Yeah, I mean, I think how you have to think about this is along the different market segments, right? So residential, commercial, and utility. And I think in either bull or bear cases, we're just going to see a big step down in the utility side of things. Basically, because if you're going to chase, uh, if you're going to build a system within the next two or three years and you can build it this year, you're going to do it because you have the tax equity and you're going to try to get the 30% instead of the 10%. And so a lot of that step down in utility from 2016 to 2017 is going to be really demand pulled into 2016 rather than like just pure economics. Um, But the bull case is for the utility sector is that, hey, there's some combination of system price reduction, there are new investors in the in the market. Uh, California utilities are chasing after 50% RPS, uh, something with like clean power plan, you know, accelerates utility procurement. And you have uh, maybe corporate off takers uh, that are doing offsite deals get really heavily involved in 2017. And suddenly, you know, it's, it's again, not this complete cliff for the utility sector, um, but maybe just a you know a small step back instead. Uh, on the residential commercial side, you can sort of uh, and and when we're modeling this on the residential and commercial side, we sort of see this um, economics because of where system pricing is going towards uh, remain fairly good, especially in the residential sector. Um, and you know if there's higher than expected residential cost reductions, um, then you get to the case where again residential DG in general just isn't as effective now. That, so that's that's the bull case. That's the things are going to be fine. Uh, system price reductions, maybe some lower cost of capital, uh, a few other things come step in, and the market you know probably doesn't grow, but doesn't take a huge haircut. Now the bear case is is quite the opposite, right? You know where we've kind of squeezed out. A lot of the low-hanging fruit, as as far as system price reductions, uh, you know, suppliers just aren't interested in playing in a low-price market. You know, you can't really get hardware uh, costs to go any farther down because module companies don't want to sell to the U.S. when they can sell to higher-margin markets outside the U.S. And so suddenly you have this case where you can't get those system price reductions. Um, you can't find off-takers. Uh, people want a good deal. So we see this sometimes when, uh, you know, your neighbor got a state incentive, got the ITC and is like, you know, saving 30% off their bill. 
Um, you don't want to be that guy that said, oh, I signed up for solar. I didn't get 30%. I got like 5% off my bill or I'm hedging against the future cost of electricity, right? So you're going to wait and you're going to hold out. That's kind of the bear case scenario. And that's where we could really see some uh, things get messy in the U.S. Yeah, I think that's all right. And I, I guess one thing that I think we should dispense with right now is I think there's been a line of reasoning that has been out there for a while that is not based too heavily in the numbers, which basically says that in, from 2016 to 2017, you'll see virtually no difference in the economics of solar because tax equity becomes a smaller part of the picture. You drop from a 30% tax credit to a 10% tax credit. Because you have less tax equity and tax equity tends to be expensive, your cost of capital goes down or you have new investors who pop up with lower return thresholds. And as a result of that alone, the economics in 2017 basically are at parity with the economics in 2016. Can you dispense with that? You're right. I mean, there are folks, look, tax equity is expensive, right? And if you have less tax equity in a deal, could you get to a lower cost of capital? Probably. But I mean, let's just take, uh, and we modeled this out during our conference last week, um, but basically taking a you know fairly conservatively priced utility solar system and you know all the average kind of tracking costs, capital system pricing, if you keep everything the same, so you keep the same system pricing, you keep the same um, performance that's coming out of it, you keep the same lifetime of the system, um, you know everything else is the same, but just adjust the cost of capital. To make up for the 30% to 10% step down in the ITC, you would have to reduce your cost of capital by over 250 basis points. Now, could you get there with a lot of, lot of different small things? Maybe, but you know, we can step through that scenario too, and I still think it's pretty difficult to see overnight. So I know you guys don't like to predict. You model different scenarios. But what are you actually seeing when it comes to cost reductions in the residential sector and in the utility sector? I mean, are they aligned with competitive installations in 2017, 2018, assuming this ITC step down? You you sort of outlined where they need to get. Are they actually are installers and developers actually getting there? Is the big question I have. I mean, I think that one important thing to note here is that it, it doesn't. Th- this market doesn't turn on and off with a single flip of a switch. You know, the, it's not like the economics either are there or are not there because for a bunch of reasons, one of which is just that the market is so diverse. You have a bunch of different states, a bunch of different utility territories. All of those different locations have different comparative costs for electricity. They have you know, different costs to install. MJ can talk about the reasons why the installed costs in like New York are going to be a lot higher than they are in Arizona. So everywhere is kind of unique. And, and a, a big thing that we have found in basically every time that we've tried to model out what's going to happen with the ITC expiration is that where you end up is with some markets, a smaller number of markets, generally the markets that are already pretty big, that for which the economics could still work. So depending on what happens with net metering in California, that could be a good example. Depending on what happens with, you know, SREC prices in the Northeast, there's a few states there. So you can have some markets that that still look relatively attractive, albeit less so. What you lose is a lot of markets that are on the margin. And that's it's unfortunate because the trend over the past year or two has been increasing geographic diversification of the market. You have a bunch of new states that have popped up. 
that are starting to have meaningful solar markets. And because they just popped up in the last year or two, it means they basically just become in the money. Those are the ones you lose first in an ITC expiration scenario. So even if the system prices go down enough to keep some markets alive and keep the market from falling apart entirely, you do lose a bunch of those smaller state markets that are a little bit newer. Yeah, exactly. Sure. I think that's something that often gets lost in the conversation of, you know, when folks say that, hey, the in- industry is going to survive, the industry is going to be fine if the ITC steps down. That, you know, that might be true for, you know, states like California, uh, but it's not going to be true for newer states that are just coming, uh, you know, again, coming into the money and starting to expand and, and you know, increasing the the geodiversity of the solar market. All right, and that concludes our two samples. Those are just uh, small pieces of much longer, more detailed shows. I hope that was interesting to you, or beneficial, or both. We do have fun talking about this stuff. If you like what you hear and you want you want to hear more, visit greentechmedia.com/squared. And remember, you're always going to get the Energy Gang for free. We're never going to change that. But if you're hungry for more, the interchange is always waiting for you. Happy Thanksgiving to our U.S. listeners. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.